Welcome to tonight's lecture on the intolerance of tolerance with Dr. D.A. Carson. Whether you've been drawn here tonight as a thoughtful believer of one stripe or another, or simply as an intellectually curious person, we are glad that you're here. As you see in your program, tonight's event is sponsored by Solano Community Church. My name is Andrew Hoffman, and I'm one of the pastors of Solano Community Church, and co-sponsored by Crew at Cal. We're also working in cooperation with InterVarsity and Reformed University Fellowship. A prevailing ethos of our day is a strong belief in the value of tolerance. Our preferred and promoted societal response to religious, philosophical, moral, and other differences is to encourage tolerance. But it turns out tolerance as a notion is a bit more complicated than we might have first thought. How, for example, do we express tolerance towards someone we consider to hold intolerant views? If we support that person's right to hold to that view, are we considered intolerant as well? Do we become a party to their intolerance? If we reject their right, have we then become intolerant ourselves? Such questions point to deeper ones as well. What does it really even mean to tolerate another person? What does it really even mean to express tolerance towards others? Does it mean affirming what that person believes or merely allowing them the space to believe it? These questions play themselves out in debates, dialogues, and intellectual engagements throughout our culture and in just about every field of endeavor. And so it is with gratitude that we welcome Dr. Carson this evening, who will solve all of these dilemmas for us. <laughs> no pressure. Dr. Carson is Research Professor of New Testament at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in Deerfield, Illinois. He is author or co-author of over 57 books, including the award-winning The Gagging of God, Christ and Culture Revisited, The Intolerance of Tolerance, and The God Who Is There. I'm reading that book currently, and I highly recommend it. He is a member of numerous academic societies and is co-founder with Timothy Keller of the Gospel Coalition. He has served as a pastor and is an active guest lecturer in church and academic settings all around the world. He and his wife, Joy, reside in Libertyville, Illinois, and they have two grown children. This evening, Dr. Carson will lecture for approximately one hour. The lecture will be followed by a question and answer session. At that time, we'll be taking questions the old-fashioned way with microphones uh, at the end of the aisles. You can come uh, at the beginning of that session and line up behind the microphone. Or if you would like to take the modern approach, you can tweet with the hashtag CarsonGoBears, and we'll get the question. <laughs> with that, we welcome you, Dr. Carson. hadn't told me about the Carson Go Bears bit. I, I'm trying to figure out if that's a statement of faith or mere presumption. <laughs> well, it's a great privilege for me to uh, join you here on the Berkeley campus. Um, for one reason or another, I keep coming to the West Coast. I have a daughter down in Santa Barbara, but I haven't been in the Bay Area for some years. and I feel somewhat deprived. It's good to be here. Mind you, 
If I were in your place, I'm not sure I'd want to go and listen to someone with a faith like that because it looks just terribly intolerant, doesn't it? (laughs) To speak of the intolerance of tolerance might strike some people as nothing more than arrant nonsense, an obscure oxymoron, perhaps a bit like talking about the hotness of cold or the blackness of white. Tolerance currently occupies a very high place in Western culture, a bit like motherhood and apple pie in the 1950s. To hint, as my title does, that this tolerance might itself on occasion be intolerant is unlikely to win many friends. To put the matter in a slightly more sophisticated way, tolerance has become part of the Western plausibility structure. As far as I know, the expression plausibility structure was first coined by Peter Berger, a sociologist. He uses it to refer to structures of thought widely and almost unquestioningly accepted throughout a particular culture. One of his derivative arguments is that in tight, monolithic cultures, for example, Japan, the reigning plausibility structures may be enormously complex and interlocked. By contrast, in a highly diverse culture, like that which dominates most nations of the Western world, not least America, the plausibility structures are necessarily more restricted, for the very good reason that there are fewer stances held in common. But the plausibility structures that do remain, however, tend to be held with extra tenacity, almost as if people recognize that without such structures, the culture will be in danger of flying apart. And tolerance, I am suggesting, is in much of the Western world part of this restricted but tenaciously held plausibility structure. To saunter into the public square and question it in some way or other is not only to tilt at windmills, but is culturally insensitive, lacking in good taste, frankly boorish. But I press on regardless, persuaded that the emperor has no clothes or at best is sporting no more than jockey shorts. The notion of tolerance is changing, and part of the problem is that there is a new definition to tolerance that has swept the field, which makes it really quite different from the old tolerance. Let me begin with some dictionary definitions. OED, Oxford English Dictionary, has a long list of proposed clauses, including to allow to exist or to be done or practiced without authoritative interference or molestation, to allow to permit. Again, to bear without repugnance, to allow intellectually or in taste, sentiment or principle, to put up with. Webster's unabridged, to allow, permit, not interfere with, to recognize and respect other people's beliefs, practices, etc., without necessarily agreeing or sympathizing, to put up with, to bear, as he tolerates his brother-in-law. And so on. Even the computer-based dictionary Encarta says something similar for the verb, accept existence of different views. And then when it comes to the definition of the noun tolerance, it changes just a wee bit. Acceptance of different views. Not, that is, not acceptance of the existence of different views, but acceptance of the different views. This small shift from accepting the existence of different views to acceptance of different views is actually hiding a much more substantive debate that is going on. To accept that a different or opposing position exists and deserves the right to exist is one thing. 
To accept the position itself means that one is, in no, one is no longer opposing it. The new tolerance suggests that actually accepting another's position means believing that position is either true or at least as true as your own. We move from allowing the free expression of contrary opinions to the acceptance of all opinions. We leap from permitting the articulation of beliefs and claims with which we do not agree to asserting that all beliefs and claims are equally valid. Thus we slide from the old tolerance to the new. Under the older view of tolerance, a person might be judged tolerant if, while holding strong views, he or she insists that others have the right to dissent from those views and argue their own cases. This view of tolerance is in line with a famous utterance frequently ascribed to Voltaire, although there's no proof that he ever said it. He allegedly said, I disapprove what you say, but I will defend to the death your right to say it. Now, this older view of tolerance makes three assumptions. There is objective truth out there, number one, and it is our duty to pursue that truth. Number two, the various parties in a dispute think that they know what the truth of the matter is, even though they disagree sharply, each party thinking that the other is wrong. Three, nevertheless, they hold that the best chance of uncovering the truth of the matter, or the best chance of persuading most people with reason and not with coercion, is by the unhindered exchange of ideas, no matter how wrong-headed some of those ideas seem. This third assumption demands that all sides insist that their opponents must not be silenced or crushed. Free inquiry may eventually bring the truth out. It is likely to convince the greatest number of people. That was understood even in the scientific realm. Phlogiston an imaginary substance that chemists once thought to cause combustion, will be exposed and oxygen will win. Newtonian mechanics will be bested and Einsteinian relativity and quantum mechanics will have their say. One version of this older view of tolerance, one might call it the secular libertarian version, has another wrinkle to it. In his famous text on liberty, John Stuart Mill 1806 to 1873, opts for a secularist basis to tolerance. In the sphere of religion, Mill argues, there are insufficient rational grounds for verifying the truth claims of any religion. The only reasonable stance toward religion is therefore public agnosticism and private benign tolerance. For Mill, people should be tolerant in the domain of religion, not because this is the best way to uncover the truth, but precisely because whatever the truth, there are insufficient means for uncovering it. A parable made famous by a slightly earlier thinker, Gotthold Lessing, 1729-1781, nicely illustrates this perspective. Lessing sets the parable in the context of the Third Crusade. The setting is critical to understanding what Lessing was trying to get across by his story. This setting is a conversation among three characters, each of whom represents one of the world's three monotheistic religions. Saladin, the Muslim sultan, Nathan the wise, a Jew, and a Christian knight Templar. Saladin says to Nathan, you are so wise. Now tell me, I entreat, what human faith, what theological law has struck you as the truest and the best? Instead of answering directly, Nathan tells the parable, which has come down to us in many forms. A man owned an opal ring, 
of superlative beauty and extraordinary, even magical, powers. He had received it from his father, who had received it from his father, who had received it from his father, descending from time immemorial. The man with the ring had three sons, and he loved them equally. And to each of them he promised, at one time or another, that he would give the ring. Approaching death, the man realized, of course, that he could not make good on his promises, so he secretly asked a master jeweler to make two perfect copies of the ring. The jeweler did this, and such a magnificent job that the rings were physically indistinguishable, even though only one had the magical powers. Now, on his deathbed, he calls in each of his sons individually and gives him a ring. Then the man dies. And only then do his sons discover that each of them has a ring. So only one of them can have the magic ring. They begin to argue a bit about which one now possesses the magic ring, which one the father loved best, and so on. In the play, Nathan the Wise describes their bickering and comments, The brothers investigate, recriminate, and wrangle all in vain. Which one was the true, original, genuine ring was undemonstrable, almost as much as now by us is undemonstrable the one true faith. So wanting to resolve their dispute, the brothers ask a wise judge to settle the issue. But his ruling refuses to discriminate. He says, If each of you in truth received his ring straight from his father's hand, let each believe his own to be the true and genuine ring. So the judge urges the brothers to abandon their quest to determine which ring is the magic original. Each brother should instead accept his ring as if it were the original, and in that conviction, live a life of moral goodness. This would bring honor both to their father and to God. Now, Lessing's parable resonated with his 18th century Enlightenment readers. The great monotheistic religions were so similar that each group could happily go on thinking that their form was the true one and focus lives on, focus on, on lives of virtue and goodness free from nasty dogmatism. Small wonder that the parable retains its appeal to readers in the 21st century. People today are no less skeptical about claims to exclusive religious truth than were Lessing's readers. They will be inclined to think well of a religion if it produces morally respectable and religiously tolerant adherents. Today, of course, the parable would have to be revised. Instead of three rings, we would need dozens and dozens of them, if not hundreds, to symbolize the mutual acceptability of the many religious options, monotheistic, polytheistic, non-theistic, And, of course, we could not concede today, as Lessing could, that one of the rings really is the original. Maybe none of them is. Now, in some ways, of course, Lessing's parable really isn't very plausible. And once you get over the initial, oh, isn't that nice, sort of thing. To make the parable work, at least three rather ridiculous stances have been incorporated into the story. Number one, the God figure in the parable, that is the man with the magic ring, foolishly promises the ring to each of his three sons, even though he knows full well he cannot make good on his multiple promises. In other words, he's a twit. (laughs) Far from loving his three sons equally, he is presented as a weak fool who makes impossible promises. This is not an incidental detail in the story. It is an essential component that sets up why the father goes to the trouble of deceiving at least two of his sons with fake rings. So, has God made impossible and mutually conflicting promises to his disparate sons, ostensibly loving all of them so much, he ends up lying to them? Number two, 
The entire parable presupposes that we, the readers, know what God has done. Far from fostering a benign tolerance on the ground that we cannot know which ring is the original, this tolerance is in reality grounded in the dogmatic certainty that God himself has produced fake rings because he cannot bear to disappoint any of his sons. In other words, the story works only because the reader has this outsider's knowledge of what God has done. Far from advocating a certain kind of epistemological restraint grounded in our ignorance of what God is like, the parable assumes that the reader knows exactly what God is like. He's the kind of father who happily creates counterfeit rings to keep his boys happy and in the dark. Number three. Equally implausible in the story is the way in which the fake rings are physically indistinguishable from the genuine original, yet lacking the original's power. If, over time, the original does not produce distinctive blessings owing to its magical properties, its magic is so weak as to be irrelevant. The counterfeits, in other words, are not only good copies physically, but they seem to work as well as the original, provided each son thinks the copy is the original. In other words, we are taken away from a powerful religion that actually transforms people to multiple religions where it doesn't matter all that much whether one of them is truly powerful or not. What matters is that the defenders think that it is powerful. Still, even though Lessing's parable is riddled with conceptual problems, one understands how it made a powerful appeal in Lessing's day and continues to resonate with many readers today. In one respect, however, Lessing's parable is not very contemporary. Both Mill and Lessing thought that there is objective truth out there. After all, there is at least one magic ring. But their rationalist and secular presuppositions drove them to infer that at least in some domains the truth is not accessible. One can think that something or other is true and can argue the case, but if one cannot prove that this something is true in a matter that conforms to the verification standards of public science, the wisest stance is simply benign tolerance. In other words, the older view of tolerance held either that truth is objective and can be known and that the best way to uncover it is bold tolerance of those who disagree, since sooner or later the truth will win out. Or that the truth, while it can be known in some domains, probably cannot be known in other domains, and that the wisest and least malignant course in such cases is benign tolerance grounded in the superior knowledge that recognizes our limitations. By contrast... The contemporary new tolerance argues that there is no one view that is exclusively true. Strong opinions are nothing more than strong preferences for a particular version of reality, each version equally true. Lessing wanted people to be tolerant because, according to him, we cannot be sure which ring is the magic one, but he did not deny that there is a magic one. The new approach to tolerance argues that the rings are all equally magic or equally non-magic. I'm never quite sure which. That means the reason for being tolerant is not that we cannot know which ring is magic, nor that this is the best way to find out which ring is magic, but rather that since all the rings are equally magic or non-magic, it is irresponsible to suggest that any one of the rings is merely a clever imitation without magical power. We must be tolerant not because we cannot distinguish the right path from the wrong path, but because all paths are equally right or wrong. Now, if you begin with this view of tolerance, this relatively new view of tolerance, its roots go back to the late 1800s. It becomes popular in this country about 50 or 60 years ago. If you begin with this new view and then elevate the view to the position of supreme authority in the hierarchy of moral virtues, 
The supreme sin is intolerance. The trouble is that such intolerance, like the new tolerance, also takes on a new definition. Intolerance is no longer a refusal to allow contrary opinions to say their piece in public, but must be understood to be any questioning or contradicting the view that all opinions are equal in value, that all worldviews have equal worth, that all stances are equally valid. To question such axioms is, by definition, intolerant. For such questioning, there is no tolerance whatsoever, for it is classed as intolerance and must therefore be condemned. It has become the supreme vice. Now, I don't think I'm overstating the case when I distinguish between the older view of tolerance and the newer view of tolerance. Both still run their course in society. But this new view is really dominant. In a much-quoted line, Leslie Armour, professor emeritus of philosophy at the University of Ottawa, writes, Our idea is that to be a virtuous citizen is to be one who tolerates everything except intolerance. The United Nations Declaration of Principles on Tolerance, 1995, asserts, Tolerance involves the rejection of dogmatism and absolutism. But why? Might one not hold a certain dogma to be correct, to hold it absolutely while insisting that others have the right to hold conflicting things to be dogmatically true? Indeed, does not the assertion, tolerance involves the rejection of dogmatism and absolutism, sound a little, well, dogmatic and absolute? Thomas Helmbach, Executive Vice President of the National Lambda Chi Alpha Fraternity, writes, The definition of the new tolerance is that every individual's beliefs, values, lifestyle, and perception of truth claims are equal. There is no hierarchy of truth. Your beliefs and my beliefs are equal, and all truth is relative. If, however, the new tolerance evaluates all values and beliefs as positions worthy of respect, one may reasonably ask if this includes Nazism, Stalinism, Child sacrifice, pedophilia. How about the respective stances of the Ku Klux Klan and other assorted ethnic supremacist groups? Are they all equally valued? Are you really happy to say that? So let me begin now with offering a number of practical cases, just so that you see this is not just theory. I, the book itself has scores and scores of these. I've just picked up a handful here so that you see the sort of thing I mean. If I had time, I would class them into various domains, uh, morality, education, media, and so on. I'm just going to pick a few from several countries so that you get the idea. In the autumn of 2007, Donald Hindley, sociology professor at Brandeis University, lecturing on Latin American politics, told his students that Mexican immigrants to the U.S. used to be called wetbacks. The bare fact cannot be contested. In fact, when in 1954 the Eisenhower administration attempted to repatriate more than a million illegal Mexicans, the official name of the project was, in the documents, Operation Wetback. In today's environment, however, a student complained in the kerfuffle that followed, two students said that Hindley's remarks were more than an explanation of an historical fact. At the time, Professor Hindley had been lecturing for 48 years with no previous recorded complaint. After prolonged administrative toing and froing, the university found Hindley to be guilty of ethnic harassment 
and imposed a classroom monitor on him to ensure that his speech was never out of line, all without granting him a formal hearing or putting the charges in writing before reaching the verdict. He sued. And then there is a long story after that. It's of no interest to me here. In the medical field, it is hard to remember that a few decades ago, doctors took the Hippocratic Oath, which includes explicit clauses against taking life, understood to forbid both abortion and assisted suicide. Since then, almost all medical schools have dropped the Hippocratic Oath, or at the very least the offending clauses, one or the other. The story, however, doesn't end there. Doctors, nurses, and other medical professionals who still want to live under the constraints of the Hippocratic Oath because of beliefs that prevent them from performing or participating in what are now legal but still ethically controversial acts find themselves in a strange situation. More and more pressure is being exerted on them either to act in violation of their consciences or to abandon medicine. Until recently, conscience clauses, as they're called, protected these medical professionals, permitting them to opt out of medical procedures contrary to their conscience. Now, however, various legislative proposals are attempting to eliminate such conscience clauses. Medical professionals who judge, say, abortion and assisted suicide to be immoral would have to violate their consciences or leave the profession. The most strident voices declare that doctors, pharmacists, nurses, and the rest must put patients' rights first. If they foresee that that could be problematic for them, then they should choose another profession. Thus, in the name of more tolerance for patients' rights, the rights of doctors and other medical professionals would be curtailed, even though those patients would always be able to go to another doctor, and even though a bare four decades ago all doctors had to abide by the very ethic that the new tolerance wants wants to make illegal. The rising number of Muslims in England has prompted subtle, and not so subtle, eviction of pigs and their stories. In some schools, the story of the three little pigs is now banned, as Muslim school children might be offended by stories about unclean animals. The trend reached its most remarkable moment when the Council of Dudley in Worcestershire, West Midlands, banned all images or representations of pigs from its benefits department on the ground that Muslims coming in for benefits might be offended. Calendars with pigs, porcelain, porcine figures, even pig-shaped stress relievers, spongy things you sort of squeeze in your hand, all had to go, including a tissue box depicting Winnie the Pooh and Piglet. When my daughter was 14, she's now 30, she gave me a Winnie the Pooh tie, and I still bring it out in protest on occasion. (laughs) Now, all of this in a part of the country, in England, that traditionally has grown a lot of pigs. When pressed as to why pigs have to go, Mabubur Rahman, a Muslim counselor in West Midlands, explained, it's a tolerance of people's beliefs. Stunning doublespeak. What about tolerance of those who think differently about pigs? In the name of tolerance toward the beliefs of Muslims, intolerance is imposed. In this instance, as one media outlet has put it, tolerance has on the lips of Mabubur Rahman and in the decision of the Dudley Council become confused with supremacism. No one should doubt that Muslims ought to be free to express their dislike of pigs and pig representations. 
The problem, rather, is that Mr. Rahman thinks that getting rid of pigs and pig representations is a moral obligation that upholds the virtue of tolerance, whereas he senses himself under no obligation to uphold the virtue of tolerance and permit those who rather like pigs and their representations to keep them. Multiply this sort of confrontation a hundred times, throw in a small but significant number of vociferous uh, teaching in the matter, and one understands why Prime Minister Cameron is at least raising some questions about how British immigration policy should now be reviewed. Or visit the website of the Harvard chaplains. I did it again recently. Not all religious groups join the United Ministry organized by the Harvard chaplains. So the chaplains feel it necessary to warn against, quote, certain destructive religious groups, end quote, that are not part of the United Ministry. The chaplains, quote, are committed to mutual respect and non-proselytization. We affirm the roles of personal freedom, doubt, and open critical reflection in healthy spiritual growth. We're here to help you have a happy healthy experience of your own spiritual journey while you're here at Harvard. End quote. I suppose in more cynical moments, I wonder if they think that that's why Jesus came, to help us have a healthy, happy experience in our own spiritual journey. Meanwhile, the chaplains go on to warn against, amongst other things, those who claim, quote, a special relationship to God, end quote, and especially anything that qualifies as, quote, ego destruction, mind control, manipulation of a member's relationships with family and friends, end quote. Well, at a certain level, I'd rather like to warn against those things too. But as it's applied in the council, it seems really to apply to those groups that don't join the United Ministry of the Harvard Chaplains. Michel Houellebecq is one of France's most respected, if least comfortable, contemporary writers, with a sheaf of literary awards to his credit. His tone is that of a younger Albert Camus. In 2002, he was taken to court by four leading Muslim bodies in France. The charge was making a racial insult and inciting religious hatred. This arose because in a magazine interview, he made some derogatory comments about Islam. He dismissed Islam as, quote, the dumbest religion, unquote, which comment I'm not trying to justify, you understand, and unfavorably compared the Quran with the Bible. The former, he said, is poorly written, while the Bible, quote, is at least beautifully written because the Jews have a heck of a literary talent, end quote. In the court case that followed, several prominent French intellectuals defended Houellebecq, but not a few sided with his accusers. The influential Human Rights League accused him of Islamophobia. Many leftist writers insisted he was so vulgar that he wasn't worth defending anyway. But perhaps the most astute comment came from Salman Rushdie, writing in The Guardian. Quote, but if an individual in a free society no longer has the right to say openly that he prefers one book to another, then that society no longer has the right to call itself free. Presumably any Muslim who said the Quran was much better than the Bible would then also be guilty of an insult and absurdity would rule. As to, quote, the dumbest religion, unquote, well, it's a point of view. And Ulebeck, in court, made the simple but essential point that to attack people's ideologies or belief systems is not to attack the people themselves. This is surely one of the foundation principles of an open society. 
Citizens have the right to complain about discrimination against themselves, but not about dissent, even strongly worded impolite dissent, from their thoughts. There cannot be fences erected around ideas, philosophies, attitudes, or beliefs. And in this case, the French court found in favor of the defendant. One more. In 2005, Noah Reiner, who was then president of the Dartmouth Student Assembly, spoke at a convocation welcoming freshmen to the campus. This was a traditional responsibility of the student body president, and that is what he was. He said that the acquisition of knowledge is less than what they should be striving for. The development of character is the more important goal. Then he added, I'm quoting, Character has a lot to do with sacrifice, laying our personal interests down for something bigger. The best example of this is Jesus. He knew the right thing to do. He knew the cost would be agonizing torture and death. He did it anyway. That's character. End quote. And then Reiner went on to talk briefly about what Jesus achieved on the cross. Inevitably, a controversy ensued. On the one hand, a vice president of the student body wrote to Reiner, quote, I consider your choice of topic for the convocation speech reprehensible and an abuse of power. You embarrass the organization. You embarrass yourself. On the other, a Jewish student wrote, quote, Many of us in the Dartmouth community profoundly disagree with that and other aspects of Reiner's religious beliefs, but our disagreements do not give us the right to limit his speech. End quote. But one of the most insightful reflections on the brouhaha after it was all over, I think, actually came from Reiner himself. He wrote, quote, The problem is not that Dartmouth has a formalized speech code. That would be easy to deal with and easy for students to break. The problem is that Dartmouth has a speech culture where some topics are off-limits and some perspectives shouldn't be uttered. In other words, in this tolerant world, some things are intolerable, especially those judged to be intolerant. Dartmouth College, of course, is the same institution which several years earlier forbade Campus Crusade from distributing 1,000 copies of C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity, on the grounds that it might offend non-Christian students. Note well, the banned publication was not instruction on how to make a bomb, a book on pedophilia, or lessons in anarchy. Would Dartmouth have banned any such volumes on the ground that certain students might be offended? I doubt it. This book was rather a mild Christian apologetic, written by an Oxford don, first delivered as lectures on British radio during World War II. Vigorous protests eventually forced Dartmouth to reverse its decision. It's interesting, though, that in the name of tolerance, again, there is the application of intolerance and coercion. Now, had I time at this juncture, what I would really love to do is trace something of the history of tolerance and intolerance. But let me make three points, if I may, about that history, though I, I really don't have time to do the documentation needed. Number one, in the past, tolerance has been viewed as a parasitic virtue. That is to say, it's a virtue that depends on the existence of a widely accepted value system in the culture at large. And then the issue becomes, 
How far will we allow individuals or organizations within the culture to dissent from that widely accepted worldview? You see, that's true in ancient paganism. How far was Rome willing to tolerate dissent? It's true in the ancient church. It's true in in Nazism. How far were the Nazis willing to tolerate dissent? And in every case, the discussion of tolerance and intolerance thus is really parasitic on the wide-scale acceptance by many, many people, certainly most of the media outlets and so forth, that a certain position is, is right. And then the question is, how far outside of that position can you go without facing the coercive force of government or law or sanctions or even social disapproval? In other words, tolerance becomes a parasitic virtue that is appealed to for the public good. People start saying, well... They don't stand in line with the rest of the culture, but it's for the public good that we allow them to go a little farther. But in every case, in every culture, there are some lines of intolerance. So in our culture, for example, a person might advocate pedophilia in publications, and nobody is going to take them to court for it. But according to the law, if you have a whole lot of child porn on your computer, you are legally culpable and could spend a lot of years in jail. Second observation. What has happened in recent years is that in the West, the new tolerance has often become the ultimate virtue. That is, instead of being a parasitic virtue, it has become the ultimate virtue. Instead of depending on asking the question, how far can we step outside the widely accepted norms of our culture, there are fewer and fewer widely accepted norms in the culture. So what has displaced them is the ultimate virtue of this new tolerance all by itself. But tolerance as measured by what? Tolerance in terms of dissent from what? If there is nothing that is the accepted cultural standard, then once tolerance has become no longer a parasite itself on a larger system and becomes the ultimate virtue, then it becomes pretty soon self-destructive. These developments are very complex. I wish I had more time with them, but I think that this is pretty obvious on the face of it, and quite a lot of people have commented upon them. Despite, number three, the claims of some, the strongest supporters of intolerance have not been religious people. God knows that religious people have been involved in huge acts of intolerance. Terrible destruction. One thinks, for example, in Europe of the Thirty Years' War. One thinks of the Crusades. But nevertheless, the 20th century, the bloodiest in human history, exhibited spectacular instances of intolerance, and the most violent exemplars had very little to do with religion. Of course, there was at least a religious component in the strife in the Balkans, and again in the bloody violence between Tutsis and Hutus. Yet most observers recognize that even here the more important factors were tribalism, racism, perceived economic injustice, very different interpretations of history, honor and vengeance killings that escalated to the scale of genocide. Few religious factors played much part in the largest of the slaughters of the 20th century, the violence espoused by fascism and communism. Perhaps 50 million Chinese died under Mao. About 20 million Ukrainians alone died under Stalin. And then we come to World War II. 
and its various holocausts. In both its Russian and its Chinese forms, communism was overtly and explicitly atheistic. In both its German and its Italian forms, fascism was nominally Christian, but only in the sense that it was happy to appeal to God and religion in pursuit of its own social and political agendas, never so as to be reformed by scripture or Christian truth or morality, never in any sense to belong to the great tradition of historic creeds. Despite the best efforts of Jonathan Israel, not only to ground the Enlightenment in the thought of Spinoza and thus make the Enlightenment an entirely secular movement, it wasn't. Almost all of the early defenders of the Enlightenment were, in fact, theists or Christians, but also to demonstrate that only atheism provides adequate resources to generate toleration. In his analysis, theism and religious belief in all their forms are intrinsically intolerant. Yet the outcome in in um, the Western world shows that this really cannot be sustained when one examines the history of the 20th century. One of the clearest thinkers on this subject is a man by the name of J. Darrell Charles. Let me read an extensive paragraph. Quote, Tolerance in its conception took on the cast of a virtue because of its concern for the common good and its respect for people as persons. Now, this is the old tolerance he's talking about. We endure particular customs, behavior, or habits, sometimes even relatively bad habits, of people in the interest of preserving a greater unity. In the Lockean context, that is, in the wake of John Locke's thinking, tolerance was advocated for religious nonconformists, Never was it construed, however, to imply, much less to sanction, morally questionable behavior. Consider, however, the devolution of a concept. What was a public virtue in its prior state becomes a vice if and when it ceases to care for truth, ignores the common good, disdains the values that upheld a community. The culture of tolerance in which we presently find ourselves is a culture in which people believe nothing, possess no clear concept of right and wrong, and are remarkably indifferent to this precarious state of affairs. As a result of this transmutation, tolerance becomes indistinguishable from an intractably intolerant relativism. The challenge facing people of faith is learning how to purify tolerance so that it remains a virtue without coming, succumbing to the centripetal forces of relativism and the spirit of the age. The new tolerance then has become the supreme virtue, if not the supreme virtue, something pretty close to it, of much of the Western world and beyond. No longer a function of a broader ethical and moral cultural consensus, tolerance is not worked out in terms of what might be permitted legally, intellectually, socially, granted the givens of this broader consensus, but it becomes an absolute good that gains the power to erode other cultural distinctives, including moral and religious distinctives. In the mind of many observers, this new tolerance thereby rushes in to support moral relativism. Because of its independent status, this new tolerance becomes, ironically, a moralizing support of moral relativism. One of the purposes of this lecture has been to show how great a change this is from the understanding and function of tolerance in the past, when tolerance was not perceived to be an intellectual stance, but a social response. There are other factors to this complicated history. We need to become aware of how people of other cultures are reading these changes. 
in his book, Why the Rest Hates the West, Understanding the Roots of Global Rage. Pierce spells out how this new understanding of tolerance is perceived to be a threat to other cultures. Quote, The currency of the term tolerance has recently become badly debased. Where it used to mean the respecting of real, hard differences, it has come to mean instead a dogmatic abdication of truth claims and a moralistic adherence to moral relativism, departure from either of which is stigmatized as intolerance. Where the old tolerance allowed hard differences on religion and morality to rub shoulders and compete freely in the public square, the new variety wishes to lock them all indoors as matters of private judgment. The public square must be given over to indistinctness. If the old tolerance was at least a real value, the new intolerant tolerance might better be described as an anti-value. It is a disposition of hostility to any suggestion that one thing is better than another, or even that any way of life needs protected space from its alternatives. Now, you see, the result of this new tolerance tends to stifle and subdue the distinctive claims of other cultures. The anti-value of this new tolerance dilutes and destroys all the hard and otherwise unyielding components of cultural identity, for they are judged to be marks of intolerance. And the West, not least with its fiscal and digital power, is perceived by many around the world to be culture-destroying, superficial, self-righteous, parading superiority because of its tolerance, while that very tolerance destroys everything that disagrees with it. The charge may not be entirely fair, but it is very widespread. A friend of mine was lecturing at an Eastern University a few years ago, in a class on uh, American religion. And this particular lecturer was insisting that all religions ultimately are saying the same thing and have the same value. And in it, there was um, a Native American Indian woman. I've forgotten which tribe she was. She might have been Cherokee. And she sat there quietly day after day until she finally blew up in outrage. And she said, first of all, you took away our land. Then you took away our identity, and now you're taking away our religion. You'd be surprised how common that view is when people view the West all around the world. You see, the problem, as I see it, is worse than that the new tolerance succumbs to inconsistency. It's an inconsistency with a certain kind of meanness, According to countless internet reports, the last decade has seen filmmaker Bob Reiner, co-founder of Castle Rock Entertainment, come out so strongly against smoking that anyone who wants to depict smoking in a Castle Rock film must first meet with Reiner and justify why this has to be in for, for the sake of verisimilitude. Reiner has repeatedly been reported to have said, movies are basically advertising cigarettes to kids. In other words, with the rarest of exceptions, he refuses to tolerate smoking in his films and in in any of the films that his company has a part of producing. And some of us want to say, good on you, Rob. But why does he not take a similar stance with respect to, let's say, casual sex or gratuitous violence or blasphemous language or gang rape? The defense, of course, is that Hollywood's depiction of such conduct does not cause similar behavior. And besides, it would be intolerant to censor the depiction of alternative ways of living. 
But then why does Reiner think that depicting smoking so advertises the habit that young people are induced to smoke? Why censor smoking? How is it the moral high ground to be intolerant about depicting smoking and to be tolerant about depicting gang rape? So that's the inconsistency. But, but it goes farther than that. It, it goes farther than that. Similar inconsistencies crop up in just about every domain of life. A decade ago, First Things reported the comments of Jewish talk show host and commentator Dennis Prager regarding developments at Duke University. You have to remember that Duke University is associated with the United Methodist Church. Since 1853, at the baccalaureate service, Duke has given, in the past, it's just recently changed, a free copy of the Bible to all participating graduates if they wanted to take it. At the end of the 1990s, Jewish faculty and students at Duke protested that it was offensive to Jewish students to be given a book that includes the New Testament. By way of response, Duke University decided that henceforth, Bibles would not be given out, but would be stacked in a separate room where students could go and take one if they wished. Prager blew a fuse. He wrote, quote, To summarize the situation in even simpler ter terms, Duke Jewish faculty and students and Jewish institutions at Duke object to Jewish students participating in a service where Duke offers a gift of a Bible that contains their own Jewish Bible and also the New Testament, where any participant is free not to take that Bible at a service that is entirely voluntary in a university that is private and affiliated with a Methodist church. One of the best words to describe this, actually, is a Hebrew-Yiddish one, chutzpah. <laughs> Another word might be ingratitude. We American Jews are probably the most fortunate Jews in Jewish history. We live the freest, most economically secure lives in Jewish history in a country that not merely tolerates our religion, but has always honored it. And who made such a country possible? Men and women, nearly all of whom were Christian, who regarded Judeo-Christian values as the basis of this society, even as many of them fell short of its values. In our specific case, it was not Jews who made Duke University, it was Christians, including a specific Christian church. Instead of being grateful to the tradition that created their country and their university, some Duke Jewish faculty and students have decided they are offended by it. The Jews of Duke have undermined the Judeo-Christian and Western cultural foundations of American culture and of their university. And for what? So the Jewish students don't have to hold a Bible containing Christian scriptures. How sad. Apparently, multiculturalism and tolerance don't apply to Christians. The inconsistency built, in, built into many of the contemporary pleas for tolerance is staggeringly obvious, even if frequently ignored. Europe, which prides itself in being much more tolerant than America, displays this kind of um, inconsistency on many, many, many fronts. When a Danish newspaper published cartoons of Muhammad and people died in the upheaval that followed, much of the discussion in the media turned on the debate between two competing values. Tolerance of the new sort. Didn't the cartoonist bring this on himself? He shouldn't have drawn cartoons like that. He should have been more tolerant of Muslim feelings. And freedom of expression. Shouldn't we preserve the freedom to publish whatever we want, even if it skewers some sacred cows? Once again, we must see that what is being advocated on the tolerance side is not the old tolerance. The old tolerance would have insisted that both Muslims and Christians have the right, indeed the obligation, to criticize the other party, including by means of satire and cartoons. The Danish cartoons, cartoonists were not jeopardizing the freedom of expression of Muslims, still less their right to worship and propagate their faith. 
So when some Muslims responded with violence and threats of assassination, it was they who were being intolerant under the old understanding of tolerance, not the publishers of the cartoons. Only by falling under the sway of the new tolerance could the charge of intolerance be attached to the cartoonist and his publisher. And meanwhile, by reducing their attachment to freedom of expression, many voices, apparently in fear because of the threats, became themselves less tolerant of those who wanted to maintain freedom of expression. In 2006, according to the BBC in Britain, a 75-year-old man, Edward Atkinson, living in King's Lynn, which is up on the Norfolk coast, was waiting for a hip replacement at Queen Elizabeth Hospital in Norwich. Because he is against abortion, he began mailing to the hospital pictures of aborted babies. The chief executive of the hospital, Ruth May, viewed this as a case of abuse of unacceptable behavior or unacceptable behavior toward the hospital staff and canceled the operation. Moreover, the Swatham Magistrates Court sentenced the crippled 75-year-old man to 28 days in jail for sending offensive literature to the hospital staff. Apparently, aborting a baby is legal, and one must be tolerant of abortionists, that is, one must do nothing to offend those who perform such abortions. Depicting abortion, however, is a crime, and those who distribute such depictions and oppose abortion must be jailed and refuse needed health care that would be provided to murderers and rapists. So here again is government-backed intolerance in the name of the new tolerance. I could take up your whole evening with example after example after example. But I'm coming to the end. In short, the new tolerance, I argue, is morally bankrupt, bankrupt and intellectually incoherent. It's not that it has not done some good. I think that the new tolerance has done some good in our culture in helping to clear out nasty derogative expressions, chinks and wops and things like that, dagos. When I was brought up, those things were common on many Western lips. They're gone, and I'm glad they're gone. Let them stay buried. And insofar as the new tolerance has helped to bury them, I'm grateful for it. On the other hand, it is morally bankrupt and intellectually um, uh, incoherent. It's intellectually incoherent because it is almost impossible to understand what is meant by I tolerate you if what you are really saying is I am not criticizing your views. How can a capitalist say to a communist or a communist say to a capitalist, I tolerate you. There is nothing that you say that I want to disagree with. In order for a communist to disagree with a capitalist or a capitalist to disagree with a communist while still insisting that the other side speaks, then each must say, the other is wrong, dead wrong, for all of the following 14 reasons, and then still allow them to speak. There's tolerance. But how do you say, I tolerate you, and, and mean by it that I refuse to say that anything that you're saying in this front is wrong? I argue this is intellectually incoherent. Worse, it has the effect of making intellectual debate and discussion and pursuit of the truth almost impossible. But it's also morally bankrupt for the reasons that I've tried to sketch out. That is, it becomes so internally massively inconsistent that in the name of tolerance, almost always it produces a flashback on the other side and demonstrates its intolerance. So what is the way forward? 
Number one, all of us, I think, ought to expose the built-in inadequacies of the new tolerance. The new tolerance, for all of its pervasive acceptability in the West, is wrong, it's sad, it's tragic, it's manipulative, it's cruel, and we ought to be busy exposing it. Number two, it would be good to return in substantial measure to the older tolerance. That is, insisting that others have the right to speak even when they dissent from us, but insisting equally that there is lots of place in the culture for mutual criticism. This demands, in other words, fostering robust discussion and debate on every sort of moral, religious, and ideological issue, each side calling the other wrong if need be and advancing its reasons, but doing so civilly. Doing so civilly and without retreating to the fallback position, I dismiss you because I think you're intolerant. I have a friend in New York who likes to talk about defeater beliefs. By defeater beliefs, he means a belief which, if you hold it, defeats some other belief. So if, for example, somebody advocates a moral position or a religious position that you don't like, and you hold that anybody who holds to any strong religious or moral position is necessarily bigoted, then you dismiss his or her claims by simply saying, you're intolerant, and thus the defeater belief has shut down the conversation before people have actually engaged at a, at a genuine intellectual level. In other words, returning to the older tolerance would commit us to engaging each other on difficult, complex, moral, religious, ideological issues with honesty, candor, civility, but also frankness, disagreement. And then there is at least the possibility of a societal commitment to pursuing truth. I have a friend in, uh, in Virginia who's pastor of a church. And somewhere along the line, in his community, a new Jewish rabbi came into town. Uh, he was a rabbi of the Orthodox uh, persuasion. And my friend, who read Greek reasonably well and Hebrew somewhat, wanted to get his Hebrew improved. So he went to this um, Jewish rabbi and he said, you know, if you've got time, I'd really appreciate it if you'd give me some lessons in Hebrew. Uh, they shared in their study what we call the Old Testament, what the Jew would have called Tanakh. And um, the Jewish rabbi was happy to do so. And gradually over the months, the Christian pastor's Hebrew improved and their friendship began to blossom. And a year or two down the road, they ended up both teaching a religion course, um, sharing the course at a local junior college. And they would drive to the college together and drive home at night. One night the Jew said to my friend, um, Do you know, almost all of my Jewish and Christian and other religious friends are trying to convince me all the time that we're all really deep down saying the same thing. But you don't believe that, do you? No, he said, I, 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 I don't. We read the Hebrew Bible together, he said, but you don't interpret it the same way I do. You recognize that, don't you? Yes, I do. And you think that my reading of it 
means I'm wrong, so dead wrong that I'm a lost man. That's what you think, don't you? Yes, my friend said, I do, and I love you. Their friendship continued precisely because there is certain candor in honest disagreement. Pretending there is agreement when there isn't is not a mark of integrity. It's a mark of blindness. And you see, this, this talk was sponsored by a couple of Christian agencies. You, you must understand how I view this as, as a Christian. Because, you see, there is a sense in which Christianity is intolerant. And another sense in which it's not. Christianity at its best, anybody can judge anything by its worst, but Christianity at its best is massively tolerant in the sense that we do not think that Christians ought to control the state. We do not think that Christians' hope in this world is to make America the new Zion. Oh, there are some rare Christians who think that, but most of us don't, that's for sure. <laughs> and, and in that sense, the best of the heritage of Christianity has insisted that people have a right to disagree. The locus of the Christian church is not the nation. America is not a Christian nation. The locus of the, the, the Christian confessionalism is, is the church where Christ's name is genuinely loved and obeyed. On the other hand, in one sense, Christianity is very exclusive. It claims that there is certain truth that is, as we see it, true truth, not just my truth or private truth. It is public truth that men and women were made in the image of God and that what keeps us from God is the hardness of our rebellion that de-gods God. That's what the Bible calls idolatry. We break the relationship so that we want to de-god God and become God ourselves. We want to be masters. And all of this leads to all of the other ills in society, directly or indirectly. We de-god God, make ourselves God, and then make a mess in the world with each other and under God's judgment. But the Christian message is that instead of writing us off, as God well could have, he sent his own son to bear our sin, our curse, our punishment in his death on the cross. That's what Christians believe about the cross. It was not just an accident at the eastern end of the Mediterranean, some petty politics that got out of hand under Pontius Pilate. It was God's actual scheme to pay the death penalty of people who deserved to die themselves. And that this Jesus then rose from the dead and was seen in multiple environments by ones and twos and tens and by 500, and that he still lives and we will give an account to him on the last day. And that we come to know him and receive forgiveness from him and enjoy pardon because of him by trusting him, by turning from ourselves and asking him for forgiveness. That's at the heart of the Christian gospel. 
But the interesting thing about this view of God is that although it presents God in exclusive terms, it presents him also as the one who loves us so much to take our place. And that's a God I can believe in. For this God who insists on exclusive allegiance also loves rebels like Don Carson enough to bear his punishment on his behalf. And what he wants from us is repentance and faith. That's a God I can believe in and work out my systems of tolerance and intolerance on the basis of this massive worldview. Thank you for your attention. Thank you. We'll take some questions now, and we'll do this uh, in this way. There's a microphone here if you want to come up and uh, stand before it. I can't see it, but I'm trusting it's there. And then there's another one over here. We'll, we'll start here and go over here, but we don't have anybody to start with yet. Don't be shy. There's also Carson and the Bears. There is, but do you want to answer who are you voting for? <laughs> <laughs> One of the things I really, really appreciate about the American system is the fact of a secret ballot. <laughs> so, you know, when you started, you started off by talking about the redefinition of the word tolerance. One of the difficulties I've found in trying to engage a lot of this, especially within the church culture, not the secular culture, has been that the many, many words, like culture itself is redefined to extend to be theology and dogma and doctrine. And when the redefinition of words, and it happens all over the place, happens, you're very seldom told that you're operating on a different definition. How do you deal with that so that you're working and actually speaking the same language? Listen closely. Do your best. I don't know what else to say. I mean, um, I... I uh my job takes me to many parts of the country to speak, and in all the continents except Antarctica, I've never spoken to a penguin. Um, and, and you discover exactly what you've said, only um, on steroids. That is, words frequently mean very, very different things in different cultures. And all you can do, really, is to listen very attentively, and if you think you've got it wrong, to ask questions and listen attentively some more and ask questions and begin to use words as, as those who, with whom you're, you're dialoguing are, are uh, in, in line with the way they understand things. The friend uh, that I mentioned before, Tim Keller, who speaks of defeater beliefs, also has another axiom that I think is really, really helpful. To dialogue with an opposing position, he argues, you have to first be able to articulate the position of the opponent better than he or she, and then engage it. In other words, that enables you to be sure that you haven't, wittingly or unwittingly, um, made a mockery of it or erected a straw man. And, and so I think that's done in part by careful listening, dialoguing. I don't, I don't see a formula apart from that.
words do change with time, and they're changing faster than ever now because it's a digital world. Yeah, so it, it, to me, I guess it's more than just words changing because it, it typically is in the postmodern culture that I see this, but there seems to, seems to be an evasiveness to, you know, when you're trying to define what something is, you know, rather than getting back an answer that says, this is how I understand the word, it's almost like there's an attempt to evade answering how they're defining the word so that you can't get that common dialogue going. Well, I don't want to ascribe the worst motives to every dialogue partner. I want, first of all, to be able to articulate that answer back as well as he or she and then respond to it. How do you see the proclamation of Christ's atonement as a solution to this the intolerance of tolerance? The proclamation of Christ's atonement is not a solution to tolerance or intolerance. It was rather used at the end, rather, to uh, illustrate an area of Christian thought where truth is non-negotiable for the Christian and has to be articulated whether it's acceptable or not. And within that framework, um, uh, uh, for me it's non-negotiable that Christ died for my sins, that he rose again the third day, that he's Savior and Lord, that that he holds me to account, I will have to give an account to him at the last day. That All those things are are, are things that are, are, from my understanding of things, not simply my opinion, but are, are a part of the truth to be articulated and proclaimed. Now, uh, in principle, somebody could have a similar structure out of um, a well-thought-through economic Marxism and articulate that as his explanation and still come out with the same conclusion, at least in theory, that the only way to um, advance that cause, whatever that cause is, without eventually bloodshed or coercion is still nevertheless to insist that those who disagree have the right to disagree. And that is what I do want to insist. I want to be able to articulate what I understand, the cross to have achieved what Jesus did and so on, and, and to, to insist on it boldly. To, if, if you sit long enough to, for me to give you my reasons for it and how I would defend it and what differences it made in society and in my own life and all, all the rest. But at the end of the day, that gets tied back then to an articulation of truth, which then leads us inexorably to the first definition of tolerance. It seems to me that you cannot have such Christian confessionalism if you live very strongly under the dominant control of the new tolerance. Great. We're going to have a tweeted question here from Hannah Brady. Uh, Doesn't the old tolerance favor the majority culture, which was fundamentally Christian 50 years ago? Well, the old tolerance... um, uh, f- favored that culture, but on the other hand, the old c- tolerance favored paganism in ancient Rome. I- I'm not suggesting that the old tolerance had no um, had no um, uh, fault to it, or that I wouldn't disagree with it, as it favored um, Nazism in 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 the post Weimar Germany, as it fa- favored Stalinism when when Joseph was alive. Um, in, in other words, my appeal to the old tolerance was not that it was always right, but that it was parasitic on a broader structure. And, and those structures I might sometimes disagree with violently, as I would disagree with, let's say, Nazism. But on the other hand, the very nature of the tolerance-intolerance debate within any of those cultures, whether ancient paganism or, or Stalinism, was, was that tolerance-intolerance was itself um, parasitic on a broader, widely accepted value system, which obviously is the majority view at the time. 
so I'm not suggesting that that is by itself a panacea for discerning the truth. It isn't. It isn't. But at least it puts the category of tolerance into the right slot. That is, it is tolerance with respect to how far you step away from a system, whether that system is good or bad or indifferent. Whereas the new tolerance so far removes itself from attachment to any system that it becomes newly, massively intolerant all by itself. Okay. She's not tweeted a follow-up question, so we'll go over here. Um, what do you think about tolerance of homosexuality in the Christian church? In 25 words or less. <laughs> I, I wish you'd give me two hours on that one. Um, because, again, the sensitivities are such that if you say anything good, bad, or indifferent, it's extrapolated into a whole structure. Um, as a Christian, I do think that the practice of homosexuality is not a good thing. On the other hand, I think that the causes of homosexuality, as revealed by all kinds of literature, are extraordinarily complex. Uh, the, the, the mass media like to think that it's maybe just a genetic definition or for a while there was a paper that was being circulated it was all due to the size of one's hypothalamus or whatever. But the best research shows that it's a very complex phenomenon that is bound up with chemistry and genes and socialization and all kinds of things. Um, one government report that I read recently says that 87% of male homosexuals are in fact bisexual which raises all kinds of very interesting questions. And within that framework, I don't like the Christian church to put down homosexuals as if they are intrinsically more sinful than anybody else, or as if homosexuality is the sin against the Holy Spirit, or as if um, it is wrong to have a homosexual friend, or as if... Um, all homosexuals should probably be kicked out of the church, or as if, and on and on and on and on and on. I, I, I think that the issues are complex and need compassion and discernment, even while still saying, I do think that the practice of homosexuality is unwise, unhelpful, and finally wrong. Now, I know that that doesn't sell really well, but um, that's still what I think, and I'm... I'm and, when I, have seen, when I have seen people come to faith who come from that background, my experience has been that they vary enormously, just, just, just enormously. A very, very small percentage, but it's very small, I acknowledge it, abandon uh, same-sex attraction. Quite a number of them decide to remain celibate on the ground that their identity is with Christ and not with their sexual orientation. Just as, for example, if I've been married 37 years, if in year one of our marriage my wife had suddenly had some, some sort of a, a tragic accident and became a quadriplegic, I would still be vow, I would still have to uh, and want to defend my vows in better, uh, for better, for worse, in sickness as in health till death uh, separates us. I, I, I would be pledged to a life of, 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 of celibacy. So, so I. I yeah, I, I'm prepared to say that, and I think that one can live victoriously and happily within that framework if one's identity is bound up with something other than just one's sexuality. Um, but I've also seen some people um, from homosexual backgrounds, not least if they're bisexual, who become Christians, and with time actually find warmth, attraction, 
and eventually a sexual union in a heterosexual marriage that turns out well. I've seen some turn out badly. That turns out well, and yet they will still tell you that sometimes in their temptations they fantasize along homosexual lines. Life is very complex. And, and, and I, I just... I, it's one of those topics where I don't like to speak unless I have a couple of hours so I can lay out a lot of pieces all together because I don't want to get stuck in a simple homophobia charge box. It's just not that way, which means I've now probably managed not to please anybody by my response, but it's the best I can do <laughs> in three minutes. Or we'll just have to invite you back. Yeah. For another... Well, thank you, Dr. Carson, for your comments this evening. They, I, for me, have been very thought-provoking. Uh, in your early description and, uh, and defining between the old and the new tolerance, you brought up several uh, doctrinal beliefs, the, those of the KKK, those of Nazism, those of pedophilia, and it, clearly the people in the room feel a certain level of discomfort. And I think that uh, speaks to a hope that we have a collective consciousness that has advanced beyond such beliefs that there is some way that we can move to what we consider to be a, a better, if only for humanistic beliefs, uh, a view of ethics and morality. Uh, Professor Sam Harris at Stanford University gives an interesting metric for this, actually, that, that uh, we should use happiness is vague as a term that is, happiness is a metric for making decisions, for informing such discussions between dogmatic views. And my question to you is, is there a room for such a metric? Is there a room for a scientific process, as it were, for informing our discussions in comparing, contrasting, and perhaps even evolving our collective conscious view of these dogmas? I'm happy to see all efforts tried. But as far as I can see, the happiness metric is really a form of utilitarianism. And utilitarianism, I think, is remarkably subjective. Whose happiness? The Nazis' happiness? Or the happiness of the Holocaust victims? Or maximal happiness for most people? How on earth do you go about deciding that? Moreover, there are a lot of people who seem to have a lot of toys or wealth or whatever who break down in, ha in unhappiness because of guilt or shame or bad relationships. I, I suspect that this is not a metrically definable um, notion. If I may ask this perhaps in a different way then. So uh, one point that Samuel Harris brings up is he shows a, a, a woman who you would imagine or he, I believe, and says is from Saudi Arabia who is in full burqa, fully covered, and it's a society that has been very oppressive of women. And he says, well, I think we can look at this from a humanistic, not necessarily a utilitarian standpoint, but a humanistic standpoint and say, well, this is probably not a woman who has all the happiness that she could want. And then he, he juxtaposes that with uh, a, a, a cover of Self magazine and a bikini-clad woman in, in the American culture, which brings up some similar discomfort. And I guess the question is, is that discussion, is that metric, which is in that regard humanistic, is there room for that type of discussion, or is it missing the point somehow? I think it will miss the point. I might, there's room for the discussion. I'm happy for the discussion to proceed. But um, I've, I've spoken enough in the Middle East. I, I know enough Muslim families where, quite frankly, the wife does not want to give up her burqa. So it's already this chap's reading of what she should want that is establishing his metric for happiness. And, 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 and 
So my, my own exposure to diverse cultures warns me that it's not going to be as easy as that. Um, I, I, if you push me to the wall, I will finally say, I think that it is finally difficult, bordering on impossible. Though lots of people are trying it, to establish a kind of generally well-accepted morality based on philosophical naturalism. I think it's very difficult to do, even though there are many people who are trying one fashion or another to do it. This is from Pat Hastings. So is old tolerance just about letting people say whatever they want to say? And there's a second part. To what extent do we tolerate actions? Uh, it's, it's about both. It's about both. And, and one of the things I say in the book, although I didn't really have time to develop it here, is that every culture, without exception, has, whether you're following the old tolerance or the new tolerance, has some limits to the tolerance. Um, the, the example that everybody uses is, uh, no matter how much free speech you allow, you're not allowed to cry fire in a crowded theater or in a lecture hall. Um, you're not allowed to do that. And, 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 so, and, and, and so there are restraints on how much tolerance you allow. And, and as I indicated briefly by one example that I gave this evening, um, you, you may tolerate someone, for example, advocating pedophilia, but you, you may not tolerate it, at least in our culture at the moment, uh, in law. You, you, may not, you may not tolerate it in practice. Um, so, so the notion of tolerance under the old tolerance um, covers not only opinion and freedom of speech, but also action. How far outside of the accepted norms, whatever those norms are in that particular culture, you're permitted to go without some sort of sanction coming down. But likewise, I would argue that the new tolerance, which claims to be very, very, very tolerant indeed, also has its own built-in intolerances. In other words, it really is impossible in principle under the old tolerance or the new to have only tolerance and, 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 and escape all forms of intolerance. It's not possible um, because, because as soon as you, you, you advocate the tolerance for one party, there's, there's so frequently a, another party that is, that is inconvenienced or squeezed out or marginalized or, 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 or the like, which means that to make tolerance the supreme good is building in contradictions in the system already. Whereas if you understand that tolerance is properly a parasitic virtue, then you can talk about the degree of tolerance and intolerance that is wise under that culture. Um, but you can't do that under the new tolerance because the new tolerance is itself the supreme good, which leads then, it seems to me, to a whole lot of lies about what the tolerance is. Hi, thanks for uh, speaking to us. So you did a, a great job of presenting the intellectual incoherence of new tolerance. Uh, but my question is, so we, we live in a culture of advertisement and commercials that convince us that if something feels good, it must be right. And so not everybody cares about logic and having, you know, uh, I'll just, you know, say, you know, say that. And uh, so how would you then uh, suggest that we address this issue of, you know, this new tolerance in a culture where perhaps the person who controls the mic might not care about logic? Oh, you're quite right. Um, that is what motivates people is rarely simply a linear line out of logical deductions based on a given. It's rarely that. Um, but on the other hand, that does not give me the right when I try to analyze the project to say, I'm not going to deal with you folks this evening in any sort of coherent way. I'm just going to give you a few scattered emotional responses. 
So the fact that I tried to present a coherent argument, um, uh, I'm quite prepared to defend, even though if I had several hours, I would start arguing about how many forms of argumentation are uh, appeals to emotion or to association games or to identity, um, and some of them are full of integrity, and some of them are frankly manipulative. And, 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 and that's a much broader discussion than what I entered into here this evening. Uh, but it, too, can be analyzed and thought through and then delivered passionately so, so that we have the emotional energy put into it as well. Thanks again, Dr. Carson. My uh, privilege. I say again because uh, about five years ago you said something at some church planting conference that uh, I, I remembered and was very comforting. And uh, also you brought back a lot of uh, torturous memories from seminary, but they were, they were good memories nonetheless. Um, it's, it's a gift I have. Uh. Grace of God. Um, my question to you, you talked about this dance between intolerance and tolerance throughout history. And... Uh, to me, a lot of it in society today seems as if it's based on social pragmatism uh, and it serves as a functionality to get you somewhere. Uh, but what do you see it as, how do you see it as a relationship with um, modern, postmodern thought? And, you know, is, is it part of the new monism? Uh, as like Dr. Peter Jones would say? Or... Yeah, it's a section that I left out entirely in my talk. In the book, I devote a whole chapter to the roots of, of, of this uh, change. Uh, I don't think there's just one thing. I doubt that it's a simple cause and effect from one thing or two things. I think it's identifiably a batch of things and some that I don't even begin to understand. Um, one of the things, for example, is, is uh, the increasing diversity in our large metropolises. Um, when our metropolises were largely one culture, then, then um, a, whole lot of, a whole lot more things are simply assumed to be right or true. But when you get more and more and more diversity in, in, in a modern metropolis, then inevitably you're rubbing shoulders with a whole lot. That, that sort of empirical uh, pluralism can, can open your eyes in all kinds of ways, uh, very helpfully. But it can also, if it's left to go uh, unchecked, it can also lead you, some people to say, well, that shows that all cultures are, have exactly the same value which pretty soon becomes ridiculous if you compare the culture of Mother Teresa and Joe Stalin. And, 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 and I, I think that the movement of postmodernism um, played a huge role in it, but postmodernism as an intellectual movement, I would argue, is, it's stone dead in Europe. Nobody's talking in those terms anymore. And it's dying fast here, um, except in some English departments and... A few other places, but but basically it's dying, and the new generation of students aren't buying into it very much. It's 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 really largely dead. But the detritus of postmodernism, the assumptions connected with it, although no longer being defended philosophically in our universities very much or very ably, nevertheless are littered right through the landscape of our media and our films and so on, so on, so on. They're they're absolutely everywhere. They're just no longer very well anchored. And so, yeah, of course, there's social dynamics in causing these things. They're, they're many and diverse, some interesting, some good, some bad. Um, but I, I, hey, if you want to buy the book, buy the book. <laughs> well, thank you for that. <laughs> We're nearing the end of our time, so you, sir, will get the last question. Sorry. Thank you very much. I'll try to you know, make it count. Um, 
It seems to me that oftentimes the, new, the idea of new tolerance, especially when new tolerance is being used to uh, you know, prohibit some form of activity, is supported uh, with the justification that whatever activity is being prohibited would be harmful in some way to some group of individuals. So you know, the Nazi rally or the KKK rally will make certain you know, students feel physically threatened or you know, unvalued, or, you know, a joke about some form of crime will make actual victims of that yes. crime relive um, painful memories or something like that. These, you know, are real claims. How do you, how do you respond to that? Um, That's a wise question. Um, but let me push back just a wee bit. If you have a uh, a Nazi uh, Kristallnacht, you know, when they when they uh, smashed so many Jewish jewelry shops and burned synagogues and, and so on, the night of the broken glass and so on. Um, you, you can argue that, that that was intolerant because because it it was harming so many people. Um, on the other hand, from the point of view of Nazi ideology, it was part of the purification of the race. And, and, and you, you just have to remember that eugenics, which undergirded um, Nazi ideology, uh, though the Nazis took it to extreme, was part of the scientific consensus in the entire world um, in, from about 1900 on through the 10s, the 20s, the 30s, and so on. In this country, of course, it was also practiced by sterilizing um, people who were judged to be slow or, or sometimes simply because they were black or, or, or whatever. It was all part of eugenics. And, and so this was for the common good. It, it, it was meant to, 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 to help the human race on the long haul. And undoubtedly, there were some just Machiavellian evil people in all of this. But a lot of Germans bought into it, not because it was perceived to be evil, but precisely because it was perceived to be necessary in order to accomplish the good. And, and um, that makes so many of these choices really difficult. So in the example that I gave, for example, of, of, of doctors who are increasingly being squeezed into either belying their consciences or, or um, abandoning medicine, this is in order to protect the rights of patients. But in all fairness, all around the country, patients can go to another doctor. Meanwhile, who's caring for the doctor's rights? And, and it's that kind of tension that means that, that, that the appeal for what will um, spare the pain or burden of one body almost always has a flip side to it somewhere with another group that's being disadvantaged too. Now, I, I would want to argue that ideally wise administration, wise government, wise policy ought to be trying to minimize pain and, 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 and so on. But on the other hand, at what point do you also address the problem of, of a rising society of victims? I don't, I don't even I'm even hesitant to bring that up because it just sounds it can, it can easily sound so callous but, 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 but where there are real victims they, they ought to be looked after their victimhood needs to be addressed but, but also there are increasing numbers of people who just make a specialism out of becoming victims too in order to cramp down the other side. How do you address that kind of attention in all of this debate? I don't, I don't have formulaic answers. I just want them out on the table so that they can be seen and looked at and probed in the light of truth-telling and, and to talk about tolerance within that framework. 
If I can rephrase just slightly, um, my question, or the intent of my question wasn't so much along the lines of, you know, your idea is going to hurt these people, you know, you horrible person, but given that we accept, or, you know, suppose we accept um, a, a move back to the model of old tolerance, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm with you on this for the most part, how do we constructively deal with the fact that we will be causing, you know, harm to people? Is, are there... Are there guidelines, are there, are there steps that we can take to ameliorate this? One of the steps I mentioned, although if I had time I'd, I'd articulate others, uh, one of the steps is whenever you start talking about the need to go back to the old tolerance, you must say with equal force and in the same breath, you must also insist on civility. Because in the name of the old tolerance, you, you can become really condescending. You see, to say, to say with, with, with the line that is ascribed to Voltaire, I may despise what you are saying, but I will defend to the death your right to say it, that can give some people then the, 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 the authority to, um, uh, to, to be dismissive, to be demeaning, to be cruel, to be uh, uh, wretched. I, I would say that's bad argumentation in any case. But in the name of the old tolerance, it might actually be defended, but which, which is why I never appeal to the old tolerance as an ultimate good. And if we are going to return to the old tolerance, because I think the old tolerance is better than the new tolerance, I think it's less damaging, nevertheless, you also want to keep saying, with civility, with civility, with civility, with civility. And, 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 um, and that, that's why I like the formulation of, of my friend in New York who keeps saying part of the job of, of, of any debater in, in, in a debate over the truthfulness or the falseness of something or other is to be able to articulate the opponent's position better than he or she can articulate it and only then respond to it. That demands not only a certain kind of civility but a certain kind of empathy. I'd really like to, for, to, to, to uh, formulate those sorts of values as well. And dare I say it from my own corner, they are supremely Christian values as well. Christians are never more than poor beggars telling other poor beggars where there's bread. Thank you. We'll end there. If you are interested in following up with any of the sponsors or co-sponsors, the information is in your bulletin. If you'd like to know about future events like this, you could, one way is you can go on the Facebook page for this event and just uh, RSVP, even though it's already happened, and we'll be able to notify you of any future events like this. I want to thank you all for being here, for the great questions, and especially want to thank Dr. Carson for being here with us tonight.